2: I feel every character I've played as some part of self. You know, it's an amazing journey to get to find aspects of one's personality through work. And some actors may not do it that way or whatever, but I feel privileged that I'm given a part that wasn't given to anybody else, just like they're given something that's not meant for me. And, you know, if there is some destined side of it, that this is the thing I'm going to spend 12 weeks living in the shoes of and in the cells of this person. It's an opportunity to look at what makes us respond in these ways to these ideas. And where do I do that or not do that? And how do I come up in comparison. Um, and I think it has been very healing for me and inspiring and terrifying and all of that stuff.
1: That was Laura Dern. I'm Sam Fragoso and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Hey everyone, welcome to the show, this is Talk Easy, I'm Sam Fragoso, Laura Dern is our guest this week. That is a sentence I've been wanting to say for a long, long time. Laura is someone who, I'm gonna guess, doesn't need one of my long-winded introductions, so I'll keep it brief. You have unquestionably seen her in at least one of these films or television shows, including Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart, Ramble and Rose, Jurassic Park enlightened citizen ruth the master wild 99 homes the list really does go in her case on and on and on we could talk about how great she is in all of these projects but instead i thought we would take a second and uh, listen to a clip from her latest performance in noah bombach's marriage story in it she plays a high-powered divorce attorney working on behalf of Scarlett Johansson. Let's take a listen.
2: People don't accept mothers who drink too much wine and yell at their child and call him an asshole. I get it, I do it too. Because the basis of our Judeo-Christian whatever is Mary, mother of Jesus, and she's perfect. She's a virgin who gives birth. You will always be held to a different, higher standard. And it's fucked up, but that is the way it is.
1: I just love that scene. It comes from Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story, and if you're interested in it, you can find it on Netflix right now. Just in listening to that, you can hear what makes Laura such a good actor. She's visceral and intense and physical and and can oscillate back and forth between empathy and power. It's something she's been able to do for About 35 years now. And I have much more to say on Laura as a great actress. But I think we're going to have to save it for another time. Let's just get into this. I just want to add a couple things for context. I noticed in listening back to the episode, we did a fair bit of first name conversation. Diane Ladd and Bruce Dern are her parents. I realize you may already know this. Noah is Noah Bombach. Uh, Greta Gerwig, Robert Altman, David Lynch, Jonathan Demme, and a few others are mentioned, sometimes not entirely by their whole names. There's also a clip in this episode from Wild at Heart, the David Lynch film starring Laura and Nicolas Cage. If you have not seen that movie, the moment this podcast ends, I'd recommend going to find it. It is, like a lot of Laura's films, endlessly entertaining i would say Uh, maddening artful deeply creative and pure in its creativity and uh gosh i just love that film anyway this was a huge honor for me and something that was a long time in the making i learned a lot and i hope you do too i think we all have to start doing transcendental meditation is that crazy okay We'll get back to that next week. Until then, here is the one and only Laura Dern.
2: Hey, Laura and Sam.
1: (laughs) That sounds good. You have a quote where you say that... uh, I dress for me, not for someone else. Has that always been true for you? No. Because I totally dress for you. I, <laughs> I woke up and I was like, I'm gonna have to wear a nice shirt.
2: I really like it, but with the sneaker, what sets off
1: Well that was for me. Oh, was it? The sneaker was for I me. I thought
2: the sneaker would have been for me. Really? Yeah.
1: I thought I thought it would be like the hint of casual. <laughs> <laughs>
2: But this is very much, I feel like we dress for each other quite okay, okay, quite great. comparably.
1: Great. <laughs> um, how are you feeling? How's your life right now?
2: Hmm, let's start honest, right? Right. <laughs> uh, complicated. Because I have one child who's just started high school and one child who's finishing high school uh-huh. while amidst working a lot. And I feel like every day is if I'm kind to myself, would be a day where I don't spend the entire day thinking about what I've done wrong, (laughs) I feel like. Because I just realized right before we started this interview um, that I forgot to drop my daughter's sandwich to her (laughs) between my three interviews this morning and I am resenting myself as a mother right now. Um, so that's how it's going. It's like every day is catch up. I feel like.
1: Are you typically hard on yourself?
2: Mm, I don't think so. I don't think I really beat myself up, but when it comes to parenting, for sure.
1: Right. I imagine your life is more full now than it's been maybe ever. Is that fair to say?
2: That's fair, yeah, and full in great ways and actually in all great ways. You know, I'm but I'm an only child so my life with my parents is very full. Uh-huh. And you know, my kids make life very full and then work and art and activism in a planet that's in dire straits. So
1: is it in dire straits?
2: It's in dire <laughs> straits. I hate to break it to you, Sam, if you haven't heard. I've
1: heard. I've I've read the reports. (laughs)
2: Yeah. um, So there's, you know, I feel like there's a sense of urgency as we wake up each morning Mm. and trying to be centered and feel hopeful and get, things done to try to find solutions while also feeling some despair about the state of the world is complicated. Yeah. I, I'd love to learn every day from someone how to do that.
1: Well, I have uh, some things I want to learn from you, I think. Okay. Ooh, I, I was hoping to learn from you. <laughs> well, I can give you a few things. Okay. All right. Great. Just not that much. <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> can we go back for a second? Mm-hmm. Um, I want to go back to when you're six and you're on the set of Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. And... You have the sides in front of you, and you're watching a scene play out. And suddenly you realize your mother with Ellen Burstyn, they're not exactly doing the lines. Yeah. I was hoping, I pulled it up here. Would you mind watching that scene with me?
2: No, I'd love to. Okay,
1: let's do it.
0: I want to tell you
2: something.
0: My life ain't exactly a bed of Petunias. I got me a daughter. Cutest little thing you ever saw.
1: She needs her about $4,000 worth of dental workout. She's going to have buck teeth.
2: What am I going to do? I ain't got any money. My old man,
0: honey, he ain't talked to me since the day Kennedy got shot. Why do you think you had something to do with it? Look at that face. Look at that body. And honey, the Lord blessed you
2: with talent. You can sing. Oh, I don't know about that. You never heard me sing. Well, you gotta be good at it. You had a job.
1: Oh. I used to be good when I was a kid, but I'm not good anymore. My voice's got a wiggle in it. Well,
2: honey, I ain't gonna bullshit you. You better get that wiggle out of your voice, or you better take up something else. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Amazing. So, two things. What was it like in that moment for you, watching that play out? And what is it like now for 40 years later, watching it with a stranger?
2: Well, I loved that you wanted to watch it. And, um, you know, it does come flooding back, like this elusive and visceral memory, like when we see a photograph of our childhood, Mm -hmm. you know, for all of us. And it does feel like a snapshot. And I do remember... I remember them but what's amazing is i really remember watching scorsese i remember watching him watch them and watching him on different takes get giddy at a new thing they'd come up with or a new idea or and so i i remember the feeling of clocking from take to take that there were differences that oh my god my mom hadn't said that before i'm not going to bullshit you line or her finding this necklace made of safety pins uh, that's a, a local had, had uh, made and putting it into the scene and watching these two women amidst chaos connect. And then after we watched them shoot that, I remember going into the interior diner um, where Vera's having to keep the chaos together afloat because these two women have taken off when the diner's full and And I remember the mania with which Scorsese wanted it to feel like. And I remember as a kid clocking like, oh, right, that's that, the most intimate private moment will be juxtaposed from this other incident. And I think I fell in love with filmmaking and being part of the filmmaking process. It wasn't about like a singular acting performance Mm -hmm. Um, it made me want to act to be part of a family like that where you try stuff and you're in the mess together and you're all making this one thing together Um, i think that was the first part of the love story for me
1: Mm. i wonder is it also complicated by the fact both of us have parents who split up very early on does that complicate Watching that movie, that scene where you're thinking about your parents' own interior strife?
2: No, in that I feel like the luckiest thing that happened to my parents and also me is the opportunity to release emotion, pain, joy, irreverence, to be irreverent about oneself. Um, to not take oneself too seriously. All those things came because of these characters, like offering a place to put stuff. And I, I think I was aware at a young age that they were so joyful in that. And they were able to really dredge up places of pain for them. You know, they're both method actors from the actor's studio, so they took all of that process of the work very seriously. So I think I saw it all as, like, gorgeous. Right, right. And I also felt like they were their happiest when they were working. So I liked it.
1: Has the same been true for you? Happiest when you're working?
2: I think so. I mean, I've certainly had incredible happy moments when I'm not working. But I do love it. And I do think it feeds and serves me as a friend and a mother in specific ways. Mm. You know, maybe very happy also thinking about going back to work is an exciting time, Mm. trying to figure it out, you know, the puzzle of the narrative you're about to step into, that's a really joyful time to me too, artistically.
1: There's so much to unpack as you being a kid because you're performing while just trying to be a child, which is already hard enough. I was wondering, looking at it, What was the process of trying to find your sense of self in the act of also acting?
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't recommend it. (laughs) I really don't. And I had to fight hard to get the opportunity because my parents were very against it. And they were right to be. Um, How can
1: you not recommend it, though? I mean, look how you've turned out.
2: I mean, I would never not recommend acting if someone loves it. I would only not recommend it if it wasn't the only thing they had to do Mm -hmm. because it was burning in them. But other than the discussion of the fever to, you know, choose that craft, I think that, you know, to mix adolescence and puberty and middle school, navigating middle school with leaving and reentry and cliques and becoming a woman i mean that's it is very complicated mm. and i didn't have social media so if you put that in the mix i can't imagine nightmare nightmare so how did you do it i had a forceful mom which was really lucky who said if you do it you can't leave school um you have to stay you know in your school and for the time you're working have a tutor and always stay caught up you have to play at least one sport a semester and you have to be in student government. Mm -hmm. And then you can do whatever you want. And that was pretty hardcore. Yeah. So it kept me engaged with like regular kid life, um, which I think was really good for me. I mean, obviously it's worked really well for certain wise actors who've also been homeschooled and on the road all the time, and that really impresses me as well. But the back and forth was tough.
1: You were the president of the student body.
2: Yes, I was.
1: And (laughs) there is a moment that I love so much. You're 16, 17, it's junior year, and you decide to launch a day-long boycott on behalf of your teachers uh, for higher wages. Yeah. I'm sure they loved you for that.
2: <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know if they ever saw the money. That's a bummer.
1: I have two questions. One, is that how you were able to graduate a year early? Is because the teachers loved you so much for doing that?
2: No, it's because <laughs> I so wanted to be an actor that I doubled up my academics in my junior year and first semester of my senior year. So I actually only left a semester early.
1: A semester early.
2: But, you know, it was a semester that let me go be in movies Mm. and the first semester I was working a lot too so I had to be tutored while working.
1: When you look back on yourself at that age, what kind of person do you think you were?
2: I'm reminiscent of my own daughter now who's a big activist and pretty fearless in her voice about, you know, environmental safety and political opinions and they have far more of a shit show to grow up in than we could have ever imagined. Mm-hmm. And they're scared to go to school every day. So I can't imagine what it's like, you know, and hearing things like "We've got seven years for our home." Being Mother Earth is uh, traumatizing, and right on schedule, you know, Venice Venice will be underwater in another year, and we're like, "Oh, that's crazy. That'll never happen." And I was just there at the Venice Film Festival thinking, I want to bring my kids back here. They have to see it. It's so magical, and it's underwater right now. Right. So I think they have a lot more anxiety than I had to uh, have surrounding me. But but I think, you know, I was nicknamed the preacher in fourth grade by a few students because I think I was very, like, on my soapbox about injustice. (laughs) I love Jimmy Carter, and I wanted to debate why he should be president, you know, all this kind of stuff. So I had that in me. And I think I was influenced by my mom in that way. I was definitely raised by passionate people. I mean, not just actors, but my mom and her mother, my maternal grandmother, are such deep empaths. And my grandma Mary was the most amazing woman who really raised me while my parents worked. was just incredible. And, you know, raised in a small town in the South in poverty. And, you know, Mississippi and Alabama, you know, are rather notorious in the years that both my grandma was being raised and my mother was being raised. But interestingly, to be a poor, white, Catholic, immigrant family, you are in the hood. And it is incredibly diverse. And you are raised with all your best friends of all races and, you know, immigrant backgrounds. And there, I think, was a deep sense of community and belonging and service for each other. And I was raised with that sensibility. And you took care of each other. And that's the way it's supposed to work. So I feel so lucky to be raised by these very loud-voiced passionate Southern women who took nothing for granted and really felt like the unseen of mm. this country, you know, and came from that. And that was that was very impactful to me.
1: Did you have any idea about career at that point? Was that something you were interested in?
2: No, I think I was interested in acting. I think I was interested in acting, and I'd had... Deep conversations with both parents, but particularly my dad, who I think had felt pigeonholed as the bad guy in the Western for a long time. And it took a lot to break out of that, to be a leading man or to be comedic or whatever those different choices are that then he finally got to, uh, to invent and be part of. And he was very upfront with me about choosing carefully and wisely to create a real body of work and not be stereotyped. And I think that was the only sense of sort of career choice that came into it. It was about getting lucky enough to work with the great filmmakers. Mm -hmm. And in my childhood, actors weren't making money. I didn't know actors that made lots of money. I mean, they certainly got along, we lived fine, but I mean, we lived in an apartment building. Uh, Which
1: is probably not what people think.
2: Yeah, and I think things changed, you know, with like box office shifting out of independent cinema of the 70s. Movies made a lot of money, and those few lead actors also made a lot of money, but an actor's career was very up and down and you know, struggle and then success and... Uh, so there was a lot of gratitude in my house and a lot of awareness when you had good fortune.
0: Mm.
1: You know, the pivotal moment seems to be, which has been written about a little bit, is that at 17 you go to college. You are rooming with Marianne Williamson, which I don't even know what that looks like. But <laughs> I'm, I, <laughs> I'm curious if you could go back to that. You remember that brief period where you're in school for, I think, two days before getting the offer to play uh, a part in Blue Velvet?
2: Yeah, and I will say I I was studying acting with Peggy Fury, um, an extraordinary acting teacher, and, you know, here in L.A., had Marianne as my roommate, started these couple of days, got that part, ultimately went away and was asked to leave school. Uh, They would not give me a leave of absence to go do this film, which was very heartbreaking to me, but then came back and applied to a different local amazing college and went there for almost a year, almost finished my second semester and then got another film that was undeniable and ended up leaving and realizing that that was my great passion. But at that time, I loved it. I mean, I... The first time having your independence and your autonomy right. um, away from home, away from by home, yourself. yeah, um, learning what it means to be a grown-up and have responsibilities and cook food for yourself and <laughs> um, you know make smart choices and studying journalism and photography and psychology and you know I was very excited by it and pro- and probably remain incredibly. Um, Pollyanna about the experience of college because I didn't ever get beaten down. I never had enough of it and and always longed for it. But I still do have regret, and my poor son is probably living through my longing while he's applying to school, which is probably not the easiest combo. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I just have these distinct memories of my mom being like, you know, you could stay you don't have to go to college. You could stay.
2: I mean, a gap year is so <laughs> enticing. Look at that um, smile on your face. I know. Uh, oh, I'm definitely in the heartbreak of the idea of him leaving yes. and the bliss for him to fly. And But what I do like is, I mean, no one even said gap year or gap semester when we were going to college. So I do love that... He's both excited about, he's looking at art schools, so he's excited about that kind of environment, but also gets to have this thought of like, oh, maybe I will go do that internship in Europe, and Mm -hmm. maybe I'll take six months and be here and do it and make music. And so it's an exciting time where there's a lot of opportunity.
1: Did you feel like you had that kind of freedom in your early 20s?
2: I think I was really locked in. You know, I mean, it was not a time that a female actor was going to be told that, you know, maybe if you really love acting, you know, find a short story, an article, and you could produce it and help get that made. Or do you write? Maybe you want to write and direct something. Mm -hmm. It was like if you're an actor, you chose that thing, and that's what you're going to get to do.
1: And usually the same role.
2: And usually the same role, absolutely. And absolutely not the lead, you know. You were serving the male character. Mm -hmm. So a lot has shifted. And I think, you know, for my kids um, and this generation, they are growing up in a generation that, yes, is talking about branding and followers and all these things that are really Horrifying. uh, horrifying and challenging on so many levels.
1: You At say challenging, s- I'll say horrifying.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, challenging, like it's horrifying and there are no boundaries to what you can and can't do. Mm-hmm. And that's cool. Through connecting with others, you go, oh, if I love fashion, I can create my own brand and then I'll make music and I'll kind of curate and I'll do this. And maybe I, then that means I'm a filmmaker or a fashion photographer and I cover my own. You know, it's I have 20 jobs in this one interest. And we just didn't have that. That's the exciting part. And then as an activist, I think my daughter feels far more empowered because she's connecting to voices around the world with issues and learning a lot. Those are the only two good things <laughs> that uh, that I'm seeing that are exciting for them.
1: hmm You know, did you have your own Alice doesn't live here anymore moment when you're the actor on set? producing this performance, do you remember a film early on where you're like, oh, right, that's what I wanted to do?
2: I think it would circle back to family. I When I've sat at a dinner or sat on the floor rehearsing and brainstorming, it's the community part that I felt that. Not actually being in the moment as an actor, mm-hmm. more... You know, my relationship with David Lynch or Jonathan Demi or Robert Altman and now Greta and Noah, it's like, oh, right. We're at play together. We're making this thing together. We all have room for our voice and we're a and, and we're family and we love each other. That's such an amazing feeling.
1: It, I sensed it rewatching Wild at Heart last night. Let's go dance some peanut. I'm ready.
2: <sighs> but we better be careful because mom's going to have Johnny Farragut on us like a duck on a june bug and that Johnny is one clever detective, you know how clever? how clever? he told me once he could find an honest man in Washington wild just one, two more moments and my toes will be dry
1: you know, one thing pulls my mind sugar
2: what's that?
1: you're 20 years old Ain't you ever curious why your mom has got this fixation on keeping us apart? I'll tell you, Lila. Well, it's more of me killing Bob Ray Lemon.
2: Well, maybe my mama cares for me just a little too much.
0: Yeah, maybe.
1: What's going on? In that movie. My God, it is like so magnetic and so wonderful. Oh! And then, as someone who is making movies myself and is trying to figure out what I'd like to say, I see that and I think, not a fucking chance. I could never make anything like that. That is so singular,
2: mm-hmm. so
1: on to him. I mean, I like how I made this about me. It's actually about you.
2: <laughs> but by the way, we <laughs> all share that when it comes to David Lynch because. He is a Renaissance man, and there is no one like him. And when we were at the Governor's Awards for the Academy, David won an Honorary Oscar. And myself, Kyle McLaughlin, and Isabella Rossellini had the honor of giving it to him, which was amazing. And when they showed David's clip reel, every filmmaker who we worship, who is in that Mm room— literally looked at the person next to them or came up to me after and was like, oh, my God, why am I doing this? Like, no one will ever have a clip reel like that. That's Uh. insane. The level of bravery, the level of even worrying about boundary. David doesn't have the DNA makeup for, do you think it's okay if I? It doesn't exist in him. He's in it. He's not looking at it from the outside. He doesn't finish a script and then reread it and go, ooh, maybe I should take this part out. He's an unedited, pure vessel of art and intuition. And I've never seen anything like it, and it's the gift of my lifetime to have been raised with that kind of sensibility.
1: Mm. This is maybe a silly question, but when you're looking at your collaborations with him and that sort of lifelong, you know, team that you have created together. What do you think he saw in you that made him think, yes, I need her in my movies?
2: Well, it wasn't talent because he didn't see me in anything and he doesn't audition mostly. Mm -hmm. So I didn't audition and he hadn't seen me in a movie. And he cast me. And it's the first time I was ever cast without auditioning. So I walked in the room and clearly embodied Sandy for him. And I think it's um, a, a purity. I really do. I think I was a very innocent, pure believer. And, you know, when I've gone through hard times in life or heartbreak and other friends have gone through the same and I listen to them talk about, oh, trust me, I'll never trust this kind of person again or I'll never do that again. Or, uh, I realize my great gift and my deep challenge is that I don't have cynicism and bitterness and I am so grateful for it and I do think it's a wonderful trait as an artist, it's challenging in relationship because it is hard to set boundaries when you aren't over it and saying, I'm done with this kind of dynamic in my life or something like that. And I think I I don't want to lose a belief in other people. And that's, I think, the deepest heartbreak of these times, you know, especially when political officials are saying you know it's not about the guns it's about mental health it's actually about the guns because we've known plenty of people and I've loved plenty of people with deep challenging mood disorders who you know don't come into a classroom and, and create horror so you need belief in people but you also need boundary and I think David Saw the belief part, and over time, as a, a person and as an artist, over time, I've learned to create boundary.
1: You know, on the subject of bitterness and belief in people, you have this quote that I really like. I'm going to read it. I have to pull it because my eyes are not. Okay. <laughs> I'm 25. I'm completely with my eyes. <laughs> it's not going to look good in 10 years. Okay. Uh, on Lucia Ball, you said, She was my daily ritual. And my grandmother didn't understand why I'd get so emotional when I Love Lucy reruns weren't on, they'd play the Lucy show instead. So finally she asked me why because she knew I loved her so much. And you said, she seems sad now. She was such a dreamer and had all these cockeyed ideas about how to get her dreams fulfilled. Talk about breaking glass ceilings. But life had been hard for her, and something had switched by the time the Lucy show aired. And I know it's a show and it's a character. I never knew Lucille Ball. Watching the Lucy show, I thought, I never wanted to be bitter. That stuck with me.
2: Well, I don't remember. I mean, I, I know I felt that. I didn't remember talking about it in that way. And I, you know, and I appreciate that I clarified that I'm not speaking to a Lucille Ball I knew or, or a life I knew intimately, but they were very different people to me. And yes, they were characters, but I think I felt I loved her so much that I felt like a responsibility to want to make her happier because she'd made me so happy. So I just didn't, I really struggled watching it. And I remember even being really happy that Vivian Vance and she were still together because at least they had each other. Like I really went deep on it because she really was... I mean, it's more than an idol. When you're an only child and you're sitting at home and your parents work and you're mostly living with your single parent mother, movies and television matter. Surrogate. They are surrogates, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, they fed me in very big ways. And television equal to film, you know, I I always like to talk about the television that raised me to want to be a particular kind of actor and the performances that impacted me in that way in television. Uh, Now the lines are so blurred that there is no judgment. But Mm -hmm. then it really mattered because people weren't talking about their TV heroes. It was was tricky in that way. And uh, I don't think television actors were being honored enough for their extraordinary work. Filmmakers as well.
1: You're talking about something even larger, though. That seems to be at the core of you, which is you are deeply empathetic, it seems. that you, Like you said, you want to believe in the good of people. Has it been challenging to keep that?
2: I think yes, and I think it is for all of us. I think we are all given, and maybe this is pre-designed, but I think we are all given experiences that shake us and give us an opportunity to deepen our commitment to trusting self, trusting others' integrity, you know, loving thy neighbor, if you will, despite the stuff we've been through. And so it's not an easy task. And I'm amazed uh, watching loved ones who've been through such horror and tragedies and still feel so joyful and hopeful. And I do think it keeps art pure. Mm. And I think for David, keeps everything pure. Art, sexuality in the character, uh, longing for love, belief in something larger out there. Um, I think these are things he's really wanted in characters, even ones that are horrifically misguided. In
1: 1994, your mother decides to direct her first movie. Uh, It's called Mrs. Monk. And in the process of making it, she allows you to make a behind-the-scenes documentary. It is called Mom and Dad's Movie. I couldn't find it online. I looked. I searched. I asked. Nothing. I'm very curious. What is that like? You're on set. They invite you to do this piece in a very intimate space between your mother and father who had their whatever, public spats. Mm-hmm. What was that like as their kid watching?
2: Amazing. And I don't, I have to find it. Yes. I don't know where it
1: is. Please, please. Um, but I'll i will find
2: <laughs> it. And uh, amazing, brilliant artist, Pam Goldblum and Jeffrey Kaiser Schott, both amazing painters, artists and teachers. Pam, who's the sister of Jeff Goldblum. I loved them and I loved their work and they helped me shoot it and we had so much fun cutting it together and and it was an amazing experience because they were honest and they gave us access to dailies and I found complicated dailies and delicious dailies and
1: What does that look like?
2: You know, I think what it looked like was them being each other's best friends. You know, I never saw them together, really. Right. So this was, in a way, one of my first opportunities to see them in art collaboration. And I realized, oh, they're best friends. They love each other. They feel the same way about art. They work the same way. And I saw all these amazing commonalities that um, bonded them as well as their love for me. Like when I showed up and started talking to them, their delight in being in conversation with me, usually I'm with my dad or I'm with my mom. And since that film, since Mrs. Monk, I've had a relationship with both of them. We spend Thanksgivings and Christmases together. So it was an altering experience.
1: There is some poetry to the fact that it took a movie being made for them to come together totally.
2: with you. Totally, totally.
1: That is so wild to me.
2: Yeah. But, I mean, I feel that throughout my life with my mother. And I've felt it throughout my life, honestly. I think there's something amazing about circling back to relationship. Again, back to when you asked me about what I took from the Alice Doesn't Live Anymore memory, the idea of family as the takeaway and feeling like, oh, here is this collective I did make. So when I'm back with David or was back with Altman or, you know, and I do have that feeling with Noah and Greta, like we'll keep working together and mining and Mm. loving each other. And, you know, the safety that you feel to go farther with people who have an innate faith in you means there's no audition in the process. You're just to work being in the creative and trying to find it in the moment. And I find it so freeing. So to be in that space already and then work with my mom in that space as a 20-year-old and a 24-year-old and then again as a 40-year-old unenlightened, you know, it's an amazing thing to kind of reconsider the mother daughter dynamic over and over again in totally different ways. Mm-hmm. Like the most extreme possibility. Different iterations yeah. as
1: the years go along.
2: Yeah. And that's been amazing. You know, I've had people I was so close to with David that I didn't see for years. And then on Twin Peaks we had such reunions and in Lind Empire we had a few. So it's that's just incredible. To heal wounds or spend time with people from your past, as intimate or not as it's been, you're all different people 15 years later, you know, and there's something gorgeous about that.
1: In the early 2000s, you create your own family. You're still working a lot of the time. I'm curious on just a practical level, what is that like juggling now having kids? You got married and you're working I don't know. How did you feel about it?
2: I don't know if I planned this, like, nuclear family for my life, if it ever would have happened. Are you a planner? Um, Only about trips. I get very anxious about yes. having everything in place when people are traveling. Are you
1: like an itinerary I'm binder a, person? Yes.
2: Yeah, yeah. I like to organize. I, I can see that. I yeah. See it, yeah. But in no other area of my life am I organized. <laughs> Um, I wish I was. Um, But I think, yeah, I think when love just happens and when family happens, there is um, an incredible beauty to it, but also responsibility to it. And for me, whose parents didn't have the luxury of bringing a child with or working or not working, um, and at that time a woman couldn't bring a kid on set and have a trailer and a nanny or a, you know, it was impossible. Not that you always get that now, but hopefully it's a lot easier than it ever has been, except when people were working for Lucille Ball, who was the first person that made sure of those. Is that true? Yeah. Um, At Desilu, they had a nursery and gave maternity leave like no one else had, and I was interesting mm. in terms of female boss narratives. I, I really love that. But yeah, I just I think the the kind of hurling myself into this new experience and wanting to have it feel differently for them than it did for me made me feel really comfortable taking time off and checking out. And, you know, it wasn't like I said I won't work, I'm quitting or something. Mm. But I definitely took a good year and a half when my son was born. And, you know, his dad was a touring musician. So if I didn't take that time off, we wouldn't have all been together. And I think that felt really crucial.
1: Mm. You know, having talked to you now for the last 45 minutes, there is such a disconnect between you sitting here in this chair and so many of the characters you have played. Do you find that the work and the characters is really a place for you to funnel everything that is messy or complicated. Oh or yeah, emotional.
2: million percent.
1: Um, because you you're so calm and and make you're so calm. You're making me anxious.
2: Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's hysterical. Um, I think. Uh, well, I'm definitely. I. I can be definitely anxious um, and overwhelmed, (laughs) (laughs) but I mean, I feel every character I've played as some part of self, and so, you know, it's an amazing journey to get to find aspects of one's personality through work, and some actors may not do it that way or whatever, but I, I feel privileged that I'm given a part that wasn't given to anybody else, just like they're given something that's not Hmm. meant for me. And, um, you know, if there is some destined side of it, that this is the thing I'm going to spend 12 weeks living in the shoes of and in the cells of this person, it's an opportunity to look at what makes us respond in these ways to these Ideas And where do I do that or not do that? And how do I come up in comparison? Um, and I think it has been very healing for me and inspiring and terrifying and all of that stuff.
1: Mm. Let's go to Marriage Story before we leave. Great. Where are you in that film?
2: I I think I'm placed as the potential antagonist that comes in and changes the entire trajectory mm-hmm. of what was already a difficult situation. Yes. You know, I think it's a a love story through the lens of divorce that focuses on two people who are going to try as parents and as friends to do it as thoughtfully as possible as they dismantle this mm-hmm. family and to stay family through it. And one attorney... Uh, can change all of that.
1: Well, as a mother, you know, I have a mother who uh, is a divorce attorney. So seeing Has it, she seen it? No, not yet. She's oh. going to. Of course she's going to. So interesting. She's a divorce attorney. She's been divorced a few times. We'll leave it at a few times. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, your own life, you can't help but look at a movie when it's that good, when it feels so honest. It's impossible for me to watch that and not think about watching my parents come together and and fall in love and then fall out of love and that's just the nature of a good movie how do you feel about the film in relation to your life?
2: the same as you for sure Um, I find the child relatable and in terms of the parents you know I think the two things that I find deeply personal one is the business of divorce which is Uh, filled with trauma and financial loss and little gain in most cases. I also, I so relate to that moment that Adam Driver has with Alan Arkin when he says, I just want him to know that I fought for him. And it just, that moment holds such heartbreak in it because we, the children, have created narratives for ourselves that we may never have gotten from our parents. We may have gotten from a friend's comment or the way we see another kid's family. You know, well, they didn't care enough, or I guess she fought, he didn't, or why do I always have to go with so-and-so, or, you know, why do they always fight? Or, and it brings up, having been through divorce now too, the, the terror as a parent to not want it to be hurtful or or an even deeper wound. But how can you walk through that and not have the wounds live forever? They're there. And you just have to do it as consciously as possible. And I think what's beautiful about the film he's made is you feel a family that tries to do that at the beginning and sort of tries to get back to it at the end. But this middle narrative is really... I think really speaks to the horrors of turning it over to other people to deal with. Mm. And sometimes that has to happen, of course. There's custody battles and all kinds of reasons that it has to happen. But, you know, there are a million different ways to do it. And court is oof, a brutal option.
1: It never seems to be as easy as you think it ought to be.
2: Yeah, I'm very curious what your mom will think Um, because also practicing in L.A. or bringing public figures and artists and celebrities into the nature of it and women in a very male-dominated, and particularly from what I learned researching, sexist environment in family law was fascinating. And meeting New York lawyers versus L.A. lawyers, Mm -hmm. um, celebrity L.A. lawyers, you know, is, is really... Really interesting how women wield power in those positions.
1: On the subject of parenting, because it seems to be at the heart of what we're talking about. Yeah. What do you think you learned from your parents about being a mother? Um,
2: from my mother and my grandmother, empathy. And from my father, the importance of intellect. He's incredibly brilliant. Incredibly brilliant and very wise about our country's history and where we've gone wrong. And, and that's because he was raised in a political household, and that I learned a lot. And I think if I learned anything sort of by default or flaw, it would be how to be less fearful. I think they were less fearful and didn't drown their sorrows in the way their parents did. I think I'm less fearful than them, and I pray my children will be less fearful. I think seeing your parents afraid is a really interesting opportunity to uh, educate yourself on how fear gets in the way.
1: You started this conversation by admitting some fear that you didn't pack a lunch for your for your child.
2: Yeah, well, I'm not counting that. <laughs> I mean, how hard is a sandwich? <laughs> Idiot. Um,
1: <laughs> I didn't mean to make you feel bad but, about it all over again. <laughs>
2: no, that's just pure shame and guilt. Shame, great. Fear Right, it's is, a trifecta. Yeah, fear is just like, oh my God, I didn't call the alternative spider spray guy, and right. I think it was a black widow near her
1: room. Alternative spider?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, because we can't use pesticides.
1: Right. We right, can't. so that you have to do the alternative option.
2: Yeah, and there are a lot of alternative options. Last question. I could tell you the alternative options. <laughs> no,
1: <I'm kidding. laughs> no that's, that's post-podcast. Okay. That's post. so you can give me a list. You, you okay, email good. it to me.
2: Okay, perfect. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is about parenting, and it's about your work. Hard to call what you've done work. It feels like it's been the joy of your life. Joy,
2: my hobby. My son's like, what is your hobby?
1: You're and doing I said, it. said acting. Yeah, and He's like, no,
2: mom, that's your job. You can't count that as a hobby.
1: Well, maybe when they leave for school, you'll find a new hobby or you yeah. find something else. Yeah. I'll tell you my mother's stuff after. Okay,
2: good. It's
1: mostly dog related. Um, <laughs> when you think about your kids, one is 18, one's 14. They're about to enter adulthood of some kind. Maybe they mm-hmm. already have. And then when you look at 35 years of work, are you happy with it? Are you happy with how you've done?
2: Oh, God, I'm so happy. I mean, I haven't done near what I want to do, and that's so exciting. I'm so happy to be at what I assume is a midpoint of a very long career that will keep me impassioned and excited forever and will involve other crafts and studying and learning and... um a Million Journeys and New Families to Find. Uh, and I don't get to say that. I don't have to say it as a sort of actor pipe dream. My parents are 80, and I'm hoping to see them at Thanksgiving because they might be too busy while one is promoting a film and one's on location in Vancouver. That's fantastic. I love it. You know, and talking to me about the... My mother's talking about some scoff she found that is so iconic to the character. You know, my dad's like, yeah, you know, I just ran a 5K saying, I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, and I finished third.
1: You did and, her accent but not his.
2: Yeah, well, this is a little him. I get him blended with David Lynch sometimes. <laughs> um, but he's like, I finished third in this race and, and thing, and I got to go to a QA and a for Mustang, and then I'm going to do this movie in South Carolina. I'm just like, wow, they love it. And they will do that till they leave this earth. They will be artists. It's great inspiration. And David has been like that as an inspiration for me, too. So lucky.
1: Well, I imagine you'll have uh, a similar fate.
2: I am very hopeful.
1: Laura Dern, thank you so much for coming on.
2: Thank you for an amazing talk. I'm so grateful.
1: So long. Our show. Special thanks this week to Annick Moeller and Kelly Hyers. Laura's latest performance is in Noah Bombach's Marriage Story, currently available to stream on Netflix. You can also find her in Greta Gerwig's latest film, Little Women, out in theaters around the country, December 25th. If you'd like to learn more about Laura, you can do so in our show notes at TalkEasyPod.com. And uh, if you happen to be on the site, you'll find a back catalog of episodes with a bunch of people I think, if you like today's podcast, I think you may like, including actors like Willem Dafoe, Edward Norton, Mackenzie Davis, Britt Marling, Alan Alda, and Lena Waithe, and filmmakers like Werner Herzog, Errol Morris, Alma Haral, Julie Dash, Rob Reiner. The list goes on. You can find all of those episodes and more on our website, along with Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to drop us a line, you can do so at talkeasypod at gmail.com. And finally, if you'd like to consider making a donation to this show, it is an independently operated and run podcast, uh, which is a fancy way of saying that we are a listener supported show. You can consider making a donation at our website at slash donate. And of course, this show would not be possible without our incredible team. Designed by Ian Chang. Graphics by Ian Jones. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our social media is by Nikki Spina. Our editor is Andre Lin. Our music is by Dylan Peck and Jin Sang. Our engineers this week are Alonzo Zavalos and Susanna Lee out of AZ Los Angeles. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Uh, We have one final interview for you this year. It's with Gloria Steinem. And uh, I can't entirely believe I just said that sentence. We'll air that next Sunday morning. Until then, have a good week, everyone.
0: The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you, and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry, and me, I'll be there too. Enter now at T-Mobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there.